Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. Our controls handled by Roland Ruiz, and we've got a very special guest coming up in just a few minutes. Dr. Gerald Winokur will be with us, and we'll talk about not only his books, but his work lecturing at the UT Health Science Center and dealing with uh, the ethics of caring for the elderly. Carol, nice to see you. Nice to be here. I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Winokur. I've been a fan of his for a number of years, so it's a pleasure to have him in the studio. In fact, he knew that you were chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging. Which he knew the National Council on the Aging, so see, he's he's racking up the points (laughs) very quickly. Carol, at cocktail parties, will tell people, oh, I'm, you know, at the National Council on Aging, and their faces go blank. Yeah, they can't get refreshments fast enough after that. No, that's true. As a uh, gerontologist, uh, it, it has to be a thrill to have someone like Dr. Winokur come into the studio. Well, you know, there are people um, who pra- are practice professionally working with the elderly, um, and then there are people who have the family members. We have a combination of, of Dr. Winokur where he, he, he just gets it professionally and personally. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm excited to, to hear more about his book and get some more thoughts from him. And we'll talk to him in just a few minutes. However, you have done your research and you have something that I'm not sure any of us really want to know the answers to. And that is, so what does it cost to care for someone with dementia? Well, I came across a series on coping with the cost of dementia at money.com, which is the online version of Money Magazine. So in in the different series, they were talking about the costs at the various stages and kind of what the thought process was as you prepared financially, which I found, you know, pretty beneficial. It was very straightforward. So um, you may want to look it up the whole, all the articles up online. Uh, but the, the, when they, they talked about the early stage of dementia, and they gave an example, his name is Dick, and he's spending $255 a week caring for um, his mom at home, and that's for somebody to come into the home. Um, and he's doing this because a nursing home costs $6,000 a month. So he's spending $1,000 a month early stage with someone with dementia to avoid that $6,000 a month nursing right. home costs that's coming later, most he, likely. He can see it over the horizon. He can see it over the horizon. So what, they're, what they were saying is, all right, you know, right now the costs are, are burdensome. You know, that's not inexpensive, but it's going to get much worse. So while you're in the early stages, this is where you do the planning for what's going to come later um, financially. That's when you get all of your documents in order. Um, you know, the average out-of-pocket cost for someone with dementia over five years uh, is $61,000. So that's probably the first five years. That's not the last five years where you've got somebody in a nursing home. So, you know, really get finding some uh, primary care physician, someone to work with you who understands dementia. 
uh, getting your documents in order and starting to make a plan in case you think you will spend down to Medicaid because there's a five-year look-back period. You can't go around giving money away to other family members inside of five years because then your, your loved one's not going to qualify for Medicaid. They see that as defrauding Medicaid. Uh, they do see that. That is frowned upon. So that's in the early stages. Um, in the middle stages, and, and they're saying, I, you know, I'm not sure where they got these estimates of how long these stages lasted, because they were saying, you know, that the early stage is like two years and the middle stage is a year and a half. That sounds a little short to me. Right. I think they're being optimistic. Um, so in the mid stages, this is when maybe mom is wandering out of the house. She forgets to eat. She's leaving the stove on. So she's having real safety issues uh, that you're having to deal with. So you probably increased either the person in your home. And what they're suggesting here is this is a great time to look into adult daycare. And we've talked about that in the past. And adult daycare really is a terrific resource if you have someone with dementia in mid-stage where they really need to be watched all day long. But they need that socialization, the activity, the meal. Um, and there's probably adult daycare wherever you are. Well, Christian Senior Services in our area in San Antonio provides adult daycare for uh dementia patients. Well, they do. And, and you know, it can run um, up to about $70 a day. That's probably higher. I'm sure it's less than that uh, in Texas. But that's, you know, that's a great benefit. And, and something to think about is if your loved one was a, is a veteran, so they spent one day in a war to qualify for VA benefits, um, and they had 90 days in the military. So there are at, there's an asset test that you have to pass. But if you pass that asset test, then Veterans Affairs may help pay for that adult daycare or some services in your home. That's good to know, and most people don't know that. It, yeah, it can be an arduous process, and you may have to keep meticulous records. Right. I'm not going to say it's fun, no. but it is worthwhile to get that financial assistance. So, so that was kind of a um, middle stage. And then in the final stages, which they say last five years, um, that's if you're lucky, I think. Um, I've known people who cared for someone with Alzheimer's for 20 years. Uh, and they're talking about, you know, you may spend more time caring for a parent than you did for your children. That gives real meaning to Nancy Reagan's The Long Goodbye. It's a very, very long one. So now you've got someone who does need round-the-clock assistance. This may be time for an assisted living or a nursing home. Um, semi-private rooms, I don't want to scare anyone, but semi-private rooms, this is from Genworth uh, and the CMS, uh, cost anywhere from $50,000 to $130,000 a year, depending on where you live. Ow. Which is ow. I mean, for extra income, I'm not sure how many retirees have that kind of income. I don't have that kind of income now, and I'm certainly not going to have it in retirement. That's why you've said to your husband, don't count on me. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I, luckily yeah. he was in a war. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, for if you're, if you're going to put your loved one in a dementia-specific unit. Where memory unit. In a memory unit, that's going to cost a little bit more. That average is $6,600 a month. Uh, a, a month. A month. Yes, a month. A month. So really nice hotels you could stay in for that amount of money. Yeah, you could. Um, and then we were talking about that look-back period that, you know, now you're spending down to Medicaid. So the look-back was five years. Um, and on Medicaid, you're, you're not allowed to have more than $119,000 in total assets. That's period. That's all your IRAs, your 401ks. They don't count your car or your house, but everything else counts. And how many of these memory units will take Medicaid? 
Well, you're not going to find an assisted living that takes Medicaid at all. You're talking a regular nursing home. Um, and the nursing homes won't tell you that you get a, a better pick of nursing homes by going in private pay before you spend down. But everyone who's in the business knows that you're going to get a better choice of nursing wow. homes if you go in private Stay pay. Stay with me just a minute. If you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host Carol Zerniel. In just a couple of moments, we're going to be talking to Dr. Gerald Winokur in practice for nearly 40 years here in the San Antonio area. And we'll talk with him now about his work lecturing at the UT Health Science Center. He and his wife, a uh, well-known poet, she's a retired lawyer as well, uh, lecture together at the Science Center, which is pretty cool. And by the way, you can hear this show on iTunes. I keep on reminding folks that. Uh, no cost. Dollar shows are on iTunes. And if you don't know what that is, ask a 10-year-old. Ask a 10-year-old. And I have to add, we're also on player.fm. So if you have an Android phone for those non iPhone users, if you've got an Android, we're on all the platforms for all the podcasts. You can find us. Cool. I like that. So back to the cost of caring for someone with dementia. It's enormous. It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And unfortunately, there are still people out there right now listening today that believe that somehow Medicare is going to pay for these long-term care costs. And it's simply not true. So Medicare, yes, it will pay for a nursing home when you're discharged from the hospital for a period of time. But when, you know, your loved one has dementia and needs to go permanently live in a nursing home, your choices are private pay or spend down to Medicaid. Right. Um, unless you are one of the few people that has long-term care insurance, uh, in which case they're going to pay for part of that care. They're, they're not going to pay for all of it. I just recently, I have a long-term uh, care insurance policy, and I was looking to see how much it paid. So um, I believe it was $500 a month in-home assistance. Um, a month. A month, seven hundred. You know, and I, but I've had, I'm not going to tell you how many years I've had this policy. But you have you to pay? have you have to buy it when you're ten <laughs> right. to make it affordable. Exactly. Um, so I think it was seven fifty for assisted. Um, yeah, in a facility and a nursing home is a thousand dollars a month. So even with long term care insurance, I still got to come up with five thousand dollars a month right. on my own, and I have the insurance. So it's it's kind of a daunting process. How much have you paid into it? I, I, you know, I haven't. I calculated it when I bought it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because my my f husband's mother had Alzheimer's. My mother didn't have Alzheimer's yet, but I figured one of us was going to need it. And I worked in Washington D.C. for in the long term care industry, so they had very affordable rates. And when I calculated it at the time, it was a good purchase. It's not. Ex it wasn't expensive because right. I actually was very young. Um, but it, the older you get, the more expensive. And at some point. You reach it. It's better just sock away the money. So probably, if you're middle aged, if you're in your fifties and sixties, pretend like you're buying a long term care insurance policy. Start putting that money away to use for you know help in the home for adult daycare. All of those options we just talked about. Odds of that happening are slim and none. Of of saving the money for a whole lot of folks. Well, that's that's true, and so. 
then welcome to Medicaid is all I have to say. Now, you've got a nice little segue here because we've talked about these incredible costs and what that means. Why don't we talk a little bit about ways in which, as you take a look at it, you can ease anger. <laughs> well, this is, came from United Healthcare, and they were talking about anger and giving some tips because, you know, actually, while anger is very normal, all of us get mad, and if we're caregivers, we probably get mad quite often and, and frustrated. Um, but uncontrolled anger, it's like stress. It's bad for your heart. It can give you high blood pressure. Um, it's not good for your immune system. And it's probably not good for a lot of your relationships either, being angry all the time. So, you know, these they have three R's if you're feeling a little frustrated and angry these days, which you shouldn't because it's the holiday period and there's certainly nothing frustrating about spending yeah, time with right. all of your relatives. And everybody's happy. <laughs> Everyone's happy. But so relax, you know, it, um, this is not going to be a permanent state. You know, if you don't feel like you're in control of your emotions, if your your relatives and your in-laws or whatever or the person you're caring for is driving you crazy, Go outside, get a breath of air, take yourself out of the situation for just a little bit of time. Um, that can help rethink the situation. Sometimes we're already mad about something else and we Transfer are just anger. transferring it. We're automatically mad. We're lashing out. Is the situation really what we think it is? Are we making a lot of assumptions? Oh, there they go again. Oh, they're doing this on purpose. You know, is your loved one doing it on purpose or do they have Alzheimer's? Um, so if you can separate the person from the disease. So rethink it um, and then, you know, try to relate. They're human. You're human. Maybe they're sick. Maybe you're stressed out. What's the real situation? So rethink the situation um, and try to be uh, honest with yourself. And it's okay to be honest and say, you know what? I didn't handle that well. I'm acting like a jerk. I'm too stressed out um, and then love yourself and move on um, but if you're angry all the time uh, if you lose your temper often if you think everyone around you is incompetent filled with rage it's time to talk to a professional most likely and you know use a friend use your uh, clergy but a professional somebody who you can really let your feelings out and say what you honestly think it really is worth it we're going to move right on. And uh, Gerald Winokur, Dr. Winokur, will be with us in just a couple of moments right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff uh, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, it is so nice to have you with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and a 
real pleasure to welcome to our 9.30 a.m. The Answer Caregiver SOS on-air studios, Dr. Gerald Winokur. Dr. Winokur is an associate uh, professor at the University of Texas Health Science Center, has uh, written uh, a very powerful book, Memory Lessons, A Doctor's Story, and he and his wife, who is a poet, uh, live in a great place. Lee Robinson and Dr. Winokur live out in Comfort, Texas. Which, and if you haven't been there, you, you ought to go. If you're looking for a place to kick back, relax, and do a little antiquing, uh, Comfort, Texas is the place. So, uh, Dr. Winokur, thank you for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ron. Carol, it's a pleasure to be with you both today. Uh, as a physician, we were talking before we, we went on the air, and, and you so much remind me of my late Uncle Sal Sog, who was a doctor like you for many, many years, who was a medical home, the hot term these days, before it was a hot term. Uh, talk to us first about your, your, your practice of medicine. Well, I, uh, I had the, the real honor and privilege to be, uh, to be in practice in San Antonio after my residency here from 1976 until 2012, 36 years. And I had the privilege of taking care of patients and their interconnected family and friends for, uh, for that length of time. And uh, I like to say that, that what we had, me and, and my associates as they came along and our, our, our office staff, nurses and medical assistants, I think we had a medical home before there was a, the term medical home. We tried to handle their problems as they came up. And as I, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, of course, their medical problems were, were primary, but as I aged, as my patients aged, uh, their social problems became uh, very important for us to deal with. I mean, there was all kinds of issues that would come up from, from being able to afford their medications, this in the days before there was a, a benefit from Medicare for that, to, um, to issues of their, their, their family, their children, often living uh, far away, and I was a surrogate son for many of my patients over the years. And uh, uh, I'd just like to, to say now that I think the concept of the medical home is a good one. And I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see that grow and expand because, as I see it, for the elderly at least, what they need as much as, if not more, than acute medical care is is long-term support systems to allow them to live independently in their homes. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, before the uh, Part D Medicare coverage of uh, prescription drugs came in, in, into being. Uh, that's in many ways a false promise because if you are really, really sick and have a lot of meds, you fall into that evil donut hall, hole uh, so quickly and you're strapped for uh, cash for months and months and months. Yeah, well, that's where the... That's where, that's where my early concept of the medical home came in. You know, we would, we would gather up whatever samples we could scrounge for people. And, you know, there was a host of, of programs that certain drug companies had where if you had a patient in need, you could get a certain amount of months of medications from them. And we were constantly working on that. But, it, yes, it continues to be a big problem. And one of the things you teach on and lecture on and talk to med students about, uh, the ethics of 
treating the elderly. And I was thinking, driving in today, uh, about our interview, listening to a story on NPR, uh, that guy who bought uh, a generic drug company who has been inflating prices uh, beyond reach of many to something like two, three hundred thousand a year for some of those generics. And those are, and he's a, it's a drug company that does uh, people with AIDS. It's AIDS medications. Yes. Well, one of the drugs was actually an anti-parasite medication that's been around for years and years and years. And, Must uh, drive you crazy. And he and he he bought the the rights to it, or I guess the patent on it. It's and, America. And jacked up the price. Well, it's America, Ron. But let me tell you something. Um, all for all the years I was in practice, which was thirty-six years, and I worked in the Medicare system, and my prices were fixed by Medicare every year. Occasionally, there was a, a little bit of an increase from year to year. Oftentimes, there was no increase. But doctors that work in the Medicare system and take care of Medicare age patients over 65, we have a price controls in place. Now, I, I guess it must be the strength of the pharmaceutical company lobby, but if a whole class of professionals in this nation can have price controls in place, why can't the pharmaceutical industry come under price controls? That's something I don't understand except politics the, the politics, and they have a stronger lobby, but it's not right. Well, I, you know, I'm just thinking about there's, there's so much about um, long-term care. It's, it's not just the, the medical companies, but, you know, we're talking about long-term, if you have to reside in a long-term care facility, um, our long-term care system, which we don't have a system that allows to support caregivers. So, you know, the political process is very important uh, if you're out there listening in terms of thinking about the problems that you're facing uh, and your loved ones are facing. You know, that's it's getting, I want to say close. feels like it's close. It's not really. Um, but it is, uh, uh, you know, we're in that year leading up to elections. So you have to think about these things. That's our that's our political statement for the day. Well, well, and, and, and I want to I want to add to it because you were talking in your previous segment about the cost of long term care, and after I wrote my book, I, I got hundreds, maybe thousands, of letters, emails uh, um, from from patients all around the country that were reading about my story, and um, I, I'll never forget this. I got a letter from a man who said, you know, it's fallen to me to take care of my aunt and uncle in their old age. They don't have any assets. And I'm an accountant by training. And I've done a lot of research. And I found that I can take my aunt and uncle to a long-term care facility in Costa Rica and they will get good care there at a fraction of the cost they can get it in America. And, you know, I thought a lot about that letter over these years, not because I think that's a good idea, but because I think how sad it is that it looks like the next step in globalization is going to be outsourcing the care of our elderly to third world countries because we won't take the responsibility, and spend the money to take care of them here. Weather's nice in Costa Rica. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it is nice, but 
I mean, th- is that a sad commentary? Are we not already doing that with uh, many surgical procedures that right. are now being medical, done in medical India? Medical tourism. Medical tourism, absolutely. absolutely. Where they go to India or, or some other Far Eastern country and have procedures done for a fraction uh, of what is charged here in the U.S. You know, nope. and, 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 you know, I have mixed feelings about that as well. But let me say we expect those patients to come back and live in America yes. and be with their families and friends and loved ones. We're not shipping them off for the rest of their to lives. To die in Costa Rica. Right. Right. Well, Ta- I was go ahead. Say, I'm sorry. No, I was to say, you mentioned, you mentioned your book and your, and your story. So, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, why you decided to write this book. What story do you have? Well, um, the, bo- the impetus for the book was my own dad developing Alzheimer's disease when he was 80 years old. And uh, he he uh, went into congestive heart failure. He had a he had heart disease, and I, being the good, dutiful son, doctor, geriatrician, re- recognized that he was in heart failure, and his phys- his physician was one of my younger associates. I called him up and I said, uh, "My dad is uh, in heart failure." He says, "I'll meet you in the emergency room." And what a nice thing that is when you call your doctor and he says he's going to meet you in an emergency room in the middle of the night. I take him over there, and, of course, he gets admitted. And within two days, he has a syndrome called delirium, which, is, which many elderly people get when they're put into a strange environment, a hospital, and they're acutely ill. And he was agitated and belligerent and paranoid. And, and I was staying with him every night. And... And me or my brother were staying with him and watching him and making sure he didn't hurt himself. And uh, his heart failure cleared up in a few days. But after, um, after, uh, when it was time to take him home, my uh, my associate said to me, "I think he ought to be in a skilled nursing unit for a while." And I recognized that if I didn't take him home, I would probably never take him home again. We're going to hear the rest of this story and, and how powerful it is as uh, we, we do a show every week on caregiving and caregivers, uh, and these messages uh, really drive it home. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Dr. Gerald Winokur is our special guest. Memory Lessons is his book. You've got another book coming out soon. Is that right? I have another book uh, that's uh, being considered for a publication. Oh, cool. Yes, yes. Well, that's great. So we won't tease people with it yet other than... no. It's percolating. It's definitely percolating. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, we thank you so much for sticking with us on Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. This show can be heard on iTunes as well as... Player FM. Player FM for you Android and other format users. At no cost, you can hear all the shows that we have done on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Talking with Carol Zorniel and our special guest, Dr. Gerald Winokur. He is a graduate of the uh, University of uh, Pennsylvania Law School, uh, medical school, pardon me. Your wife's the lawyer. You're the doctor. We'll get it straight. And uh, uh, went to Bucknell. I, happen, I grew up in the north, so I, I know Bucknell. It's a great school. It's a nice, it's a nice liberal arts college in a yeah. beautiful Lewisburg, part of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, as you said. Right. Lewisburg is known for two things: Bucknell University and a huge prison. Federal, federal penitentiary. <laughs> exactly. I, 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 I haven't been in the other. 
the other facility. Thank I'm God. glad to hear that. Now, <laughs> you were talking about why you wrote your book, Memory Lessons, A Doctor's Story, and your, uh, your dad has congestive heart failure. He goes into the hospital, uh, suffers uh, delirium there. It unmasks, as you were telling us off the air, uh, dementia, and uh, there was thought to put him into a skilled nursing facility, uh, but you figured if he went there, he'd never come home. Yes. He was so confused that I knew that if I sent him to another strange place uh, where he wouldn't have familiar faces around him, that I didn't think he'd come home again. So I did take him home, and I promised him that I would never put him back in the hospital. And for the next eight years, uh, thanks to the efforts of my mother and some part-time caregivers during the day and my brother who lives very close and me we worked to keep him at home and we did until he passed away but that was eight years later now you said the uh, occurrence in the hospital unmasked his dementia did you not know that he was struggling with dementia well let's put it this way uh, families can be in denial I wasn't exactly in denial as a, as a geriatrician but we were making excuses for him. Um, I, had, I had taken his car away shortly before that admission because he was getting lost when he was driving my mother just from the local Lubies back to their house, which was One you know, Luan six, special, home six, two days six, later. Six blocks. And, yeah. you know, my mother would say, you've got to turn this way. And he would say, oh, no, that's, that's wrong. And they would get into fights, and my mother refused to go out with him anymore. Right. And, uh, and I took him for a little driving test myself. Uh, and in the course of about 15 minutes, he almost killed us three times. And I had taken his car away, but this was maybe six months before he ended up in the hospital. Yeah. And you now are, for your mom, back again providing home health care. My mother... Uh, 92? She's a wonderful woman. She's almost 92. She worked for me in my office until she was 80 years old. That's so cool. And learned to operate a computer before I did. Uh, <laughs> Probably better at yes, it, too. Yes, <laughs> uh, but, but she has terrible macular degeneration. At this point, is practically blind. Right. And she had to give up working in the office. And then five years ago, she had a stroke, which I didn't think she would survive, but she did. And she's almost back to normal from that and still lived alone and independently in their little house where they've lived for 35 years but this past January she fell and broke her hip oh. in the house and you know and wore one of those little alert buttons around her neck and you know she called the MS and they were there before I got there before my brother got there really and uh, she ended up having to have her hip repaired and it was two months later I brought her home after multiple complications. Mm. And since then, which was April, we've had um, a, a, a wonderful caregiver living in with her 24-7 and, and caregiver coverage. And, uh, but she keeps, you know, she's, she's frail. She's elderly. She gets illnesses, respiratory illnesses primarily. And, uh, you know, there has been a couple of occasions where she could have gone back to the hospital, but you know, one advantage to having a son who's a doctor and closely in touch with her doctor is, you know, I can get her antibiotics and I can get her nebulizer treatments, and I, 
I can do what I need to do to try to keep her at home, and so far I've managed to do that. Well, I, I'm sitting here listening to you <laughs> and thinking about, I mean, you just mentioned the advantages of being, you know, a physician and taking care of your mom, but I, I was sitting here listening and thinking, you know, you don't get immunity, though. So being a geriatrician, being a physician, I mean, you have walking the same path and, and dealing with your father and dementia and your mother, broken hip. Um, you know, this is the way life is, and, and we don't escape that. And, you know, probably just as difficult emotionally for you as it is for anybody else, even though, you know, intellectually you know exactly what's going on. Well, yeah, the, and the, 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 the good thing or maybe the bad thing is, is that when something happens, I see it, it. I see everything laid out in front of us, like 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 a plane you coming see the down whole path. runway. I see what's going to happen, what's likely to happen, what could happen. I'm there to try to help, try to anticipate. Sometimes I feel that no good deed goes unpunished when you're trying to take care of a parent. But <laughs> you know, I think everybody experiences that. But I see what's coming, and that that's an advantage. But let me tell you, it's also an emotional burden, but one I'm, I'm glad to shoulder, though. Well, you've mentioned a couple of times trying to keep her out of the hospital, uh, wanting your dad not in a long care kind of facility. Uh, I, I read a book, this is years ago, about the worst place to be when you're sick is in a hospital. Uh, that is especially true for the elderly. Because? Especially true. Well, the elderly um, are on multiple medications. They are usually compl complicated medically, which means there's a lot of doctors coming to see them. Uh, nurses are coming in and out. A, a, a very high percentage of them get somewhat confused. They, they wake up in the night, they think they're at home, and they try to get out of those hospital beds. And you know what's in there. There's IV poles and, and uh, it's hazardous. And, and little tables and rolling things, and and they fall, or they're given too much medicine. You know, someone someone comes in, and you know the patient's throwing up, and the next thing you know, they're on medicines that no elderly person should ever be on. But that's sort of the the standard therapy for nausea and vomiting, uh, or they're getting pain medicines, and they're usually getting too much. Uh, and 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 in combination with the other drugs they're taking, suddenly they're being overdosed. I mean, so many things happen to them in the hospital that it is my opinion, and I, when I was in practice, I urged my families, when your mom goes into the hospital or your, or your dad, um, someone needs to be there with them 24-7. And you did that with your father. And we did that with my father. We did that with my mother. Well, yeah. it's still, it's doubly, if it was true then, it is doubly true now. It's only gotten worse. Yeah, you absolutely cannot leave your loved one alone in the hospital you just can't and you have to ask at every juncture what are you doing what are you giving what is that i mean just you yeah. have to keep asking those questions absolutely and and the other thing that happens now and i'm sure you run into this carol when it's time for patients to leave the discharge instructions are now so complicated and there's so many hands so many cooks in the kitchen deciding what patients are going to go home on medication-wise. And the instructions are difficult. And nobody takes the time, really. Very few people take the time 
because the old-time primary care doctor is often not there when the patient's in the hospital. No, today we we turn the patients over to a whole other group of doctors called hospitalists, and they worry about them in the hospital, and the primary cares worry about them as an outpatient. But in that transition from hospital to home or hospital to nursing home, so many things fall through the cracks. In fact, there's a study that shows that over there over 40% of discharge orders are are in error in some way in these transitions of care, and it is a real problem today. Now, you have a passage you want to read to us uh, in your book about caring for an elderly patient yes. with uh, Alzheimer's. Yes, I, I, I'm going to need you to be sure to talk into the mic. I um, I just have a couple of paragraphs I've lo- I'd like to read because when my father was so ill and he came out of the hospital, I always thought there was something else I ought to be doing. And especially because you're a doctor. Exactly. So I'd like to just read a couple of paragraphs. Sure. You are there alone in the house with your debilitated or demented loved one. You have flown in from across the continent and are now at the bedside of your father or mother in a hospital ICU, wondering what to do next as the respirator hisses and clicks in the corner. You pace the halls of the nursing home As the aides finally come to clean the excrement from your mother's bottom, apply the protective unguents to the inflamed flesh. Or you sit again at a bedside, watching as a bag of opaque liquid is pumped drop by drop through the plastic tubing, which makes its way under the sheets and into the stomach of someone you once knew and still love. You feel guilty and powerless and abandoned and angry and bereft. You have decisions to make and no one to guide you. Your father's doctor or some anonymous care team on daily rounds floats in and out of the room very early or very late. You think they are trying to avoid you on purpose, your difficult questions, and maybe they are. Your own children live far away. Your siblings are obstinate or in denial or still angry over some long-ago slight, some falling out, which seems silly now. You are afraid that you will make a mistake, decide the wrong thing, choose the wrong path. Honor thy father and thy mother. Your head spins. Oh God, how can I not feed her through this tube? If I demand it be removed, if I discontinue this infernal respirator, I know he will die. The doctor says she must go back into the hospital to treat this pneumonia. Again. How many times can she survive this? Is this hurting him? Would she want this? If I say enough, am I committing a sin? Murder. Will mom forgive me? My sister. Will I ever be able to forgive myself? Wow. So as you think about these issues, and for the caregivers who are listening, and we've got about a minute and a half left, best advice for caregivers in that situation with someone who is at end-of-life stages? Well, The planning for this end-of-life stage, as you mentioned, has to begin much earlier than most of these conversations begin. That's one of the main problems now in America. Still, 75% of, of people do not have an advanced directive, even with all the talk that there is surrounding end-of-life issues today. So the, 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 the discussions have to be begun early. 
And there are agencies, there are websites in Texas that will help you deal with this, but the discussions must begin. There is now, finally, a Medicare benefit to physicians who want to counsel families about these end-of-life issues. Uh, when I was in practice, it's just part of what we did, but it's obvious those the conversations weren't being held, so, so Medicare uh, decided they would provide a benefit for this. Got to stop you right there. We have to have you back if we well, can persuade you to you. come we in do. from Comfort. We thought comfort. about five different topics it's that we could talk to It's been a pleasure to be Well, you're a great you. guest. And uh, Memory Lessons, A Doctor's Story, Gerald Winokur, uh, published by Hyper, Hi Hyperion. Hyperion, still available. Yes. Amazon and elsewhere. Yes. Well, thank you so much, and you were kind enough to give us copies. You're welcome. i got to get thank you to you. autograph this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a real honor. Thank it you for coming. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Up next, Take 10. On Caregiver SOS On Air with Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a well-med patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Thank you so much for staying with us to listen to Take 10. This segment follows each and every one of our Caregiver SOS programs on 9.30 a.m. The Answer on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. And joining us now on our Caregiver SOS Hotline, Dr. Jamie Heisman. Jamie, good afternoon. Hi, how are you both? We're both great, and among other things, you are not only a psychotherapist dealing with issues like caregiving and addictions, but you also uh, do a lot of work with folks who are deep in depression, and that leads me back to Carol. Well, the, the topic that came up today came because I was having a conversation with someone who lost, you know, a parent recently, and they were talking about the grieving process and and, you know, they were getting some advice from a, a physician. Um, and I was thinking just in terms of the grieving process. And, and sometimes I know that those of us who are caregivers, it's like we try to anticipate it, that somehow we can know that we're going to lose our loved one one of these days. And somehow we can get ahead of that. And, it's, it, and we're not going to experience it. So can you get ahead of grief? Is that possible? Well, often caregivers do have a sense of grief from the very moment they become a caregiver if it's chronic or terminal illness and there is it's it's a longer process and one people sometimes people ask why is that person not necessarily as as 
broken up as some others who just find out about the loss. So there is a, an organic grief that does happen, and, and grief is a natural reaction to loss. So um, whether you lose a, a beloved person or an animal or, or somebody, you're going to experience grief. Um, caregivers, on the other hand, often do experience what's called complicated grief, where they seem to lose both their loved one and their full-time job, and, and, and it can last for, for a long period of time. So if you were talking about complicated grief, that tends to last longer, and, and, and would that perhaps require a stronger intervention where you, you know, you know, situational grief, you've lost a loved one, you expect that, and, and yes, there are support groups for that, but when it goes on and on and on and you can't move on and it's been a, a fairly long period of time, that's not, that's not normal grieving. No, it's not. Actually, it's more akin to uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a, a more of a longer-lasting emotional reaction to a disturbing event. And um, it, it is a traumatizing event. So we cannot shy away from the, the word or the, the, the acronym PTSD. Uh, it is a big issue, um, and feelings don't go away. They often get worse, and, and there's often nightmares and flashbacks and things like that that occur. And you know, it's very difficult to, to deal with life or job or family and friends in that sort of way. That's a grief that, that truly is, is one that, um, that needs added attention. Well, we think of PTSD most often in terms of somebody who's been in combat. True, Ron, but if you think of people in combat, the word that we often hear is shell-shocked, right? Correct. And so shell-shock can happen metaphorically to a person as well um, that's not necessarily in battle but is under siege and so yes it's it's definitely ptsd is is, is huge among our military and and those who go and experience the the horrors of war there's no doubt about it but ptsd is also physical sexual uh, emotional trauma um and and certainly um even you know not just deaths but divorces are are, are truly ptsd material i was going to say when, when i was executive director of the rape crisis center here for many years many of the uh, survivors suffered from ptsd and a couple of our therapists began experimenting with emdr as a way to treat them and it proved pretty successful so what's emdr yeah. Well, it's eye movement. It's a rapid desensitization done by Dr. Frances Shapiro, who really uh, had it t together when she created the concept of EMDR. And, and it's done by specialized uh, practitioners who have been certified in EMDR training. Yeah, they go for a special PTSD. training. And it's, um, it literally will bring trauma up and allow them to process it through a rapid eye movement sort of desensitization. Again, that sounds like all voodoo to the audience but in the hands of a skilled therapist works quite well. We had a, uh, a, a survivor who could not be in the same room or even office complex with a male. She had been so brutalized and so affected by it. And so when she was scheduled for an appointment, I had to be elsewhere. And by the time she had been through uh, several sessions, I could be there. She was fine with it. Yes. Like and a miracle. It was a miracle. That representation, that trigger, that right. cue, that that throws a person who's trying to balance their life with PTSD back into a dark place. It, and it yeah. has nothing to do with you no, of course. whatsoever. Of course. Well, let's go back to, you know, like a, a normal grieving process where, you know, what, 
what would be considered normal? I mean, what would we expect so that, you know, if we lose a loved one that we shouldn't worry about ourselves or, or worry about our family member who may be grieving? What would be, well, you know, considered just normal? Everyone grieves in different ways. There's really no normal expected period time of grieving. It takes longer, obviously, when the death um, or loss is traumatic and unexpected. I mean, it takes much longer then. Um, people experience physical reactions when they lose a loved one, you know, the short of breath and tired and restless. Um, they feel shock, fear. There's a lot of guilt and anger that goes into grief. Um, there's a lot of avoiding other people and, and because somehow you start isolating. Um, and, and also you also get into a spiritual sort of conundrum, wondering, you know, what is this meant for? Why am I here? Why was this allowed? So all this plays into the world of, of grief. And the normal process, understanding it's different for everybody, uh, but uh, at some point you should begin to come out of that. Yeah, that may be different. It may be a snowflake where grief is different for everybody, but coming out of grief, uh, not, not complicated or, tr- or PTSD, is, is, is pretty much a template. I mean, you, you've got to take care of yourself diligently. Uh, you have to allow other people to come in and help support you. You have to join a support group, you know, move, exercise, talk to a friend, that type of thing. And you have to rest um, and, and be able to speak, speak to somebody who you feel comfortable with. And grief is the ideal reason somebody should go call a therapist. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernil and Dr. Jamie Heisman. You hear us at 9.30 a.m. The Answer and podcasts of all of our shows are available at no cost on iTunes and Player FM. FM. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so, so Jamie, you know, there's a... Grieving in some ways is cultural. So in the United States, I can remember as a child where there would be a wreath on the door. Family members might, you know, you used to wear black clothing, a black armband. There were visual signs that someone is grieving, that something has happened. We don't really have that anymore. And, you know, you get a couple of days off from work. (laughs) And that's about it. So, you know, in America, do you think it's harder to grieve now than it used to be? I don't think there's a, any question about that. I think you're you're on to something big time. I mean, in my religion, you you have you sit shiva. People come over, bring food. Food is the big issue. You may wear a torn uh, a, a piece of torn cloth on your lapel. Um, but and some families point, with all of these rituals and routines uh, that seem to be dropping as fast as social media and and the quickness of our life keeps moving. Um, I, I totally agree with you, Carol. I think that we, we are losing the art of grieving here, and, uh, and that's a shame. Uh, and uh, it's a shame because you're not able to process it. Well, and there's and an expectation that, yeah, and there's an expectation that you should move on. What, you're still grieving? You know, isn't that long enough? Good grief. Well, that's my, <laughs> aunt, my Aunt Reva, 40 years. 40 years is a little long. For Uncle Leo, 40 years. It's a little long. (laughs) It's a long time. But two hours, one day, three days is probably not enough. And and I guess the next question that Carol was coming to Dr. Jamie without putting words in her mouth is when do you know it's complicated grieving? When do you know you need help? Well, you need help, I think, all the time. I'm going to be really clear about that to our listening audience because you don't really know, Ron. Here's the deal. On the front end, you don't know. 
you don't know if it's going to turn into complicated grief, if it has more of the symptoms of PTSD, you don't know. And that's why I would suggest to anybody who's listening to this uh, show right now to understand that obviously, you know, death is inevitable, the time is not. Uh, I would jump in. I would make it an immediate reaction. I would make it a flow chart that if somebody passed, you jump in to see a therapist. And then let the therapist and you uh, like get in front of it. Do the prevention instead of the intervention that has to happen afterwards. And maybe it just has to happen with another person to make sense of it. And unfortunately, we are flat out of time. I thank you very much, Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel. Uh, this gives you a, just a taste of complicated grieving right here on Caregiver SOS on air on Take 10. Podcasts are available. Check it out on 930 AM, The Answer. We come to you every week. Thank you. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer.